Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through the industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. And today we have Jonathan Melrod, author, activist, is the author of Fighting Times, revolutionary labor militant, international human rights lawyer. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Ajay. That's, I'm happy to be here. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Welcome to India. Welcome to, you know, to a lot of new audience who would want to learn and understand about you, about the fighting, the causes that you have been fighting for, uh, Jonathan. So first, my first question to you, uh, Jonathan, is that uh, what is activism today? Where does it stand today? Because the way you started your life, that was a different time, the different fight. And today the world has changed so much. And the fight is also activism. Even the meaning seemed to have changed. Why? We'll come to that. But what, from your understanding, how do you see the activism that is happening today? Well, it's very interesting that you bring that up. Because today there was videotape released from police video cameras that they're now forced to wear. And five of them, they were all black police, beat to death a young black man, father of a young boy. And they were all fired immediately from the police force. And the protests have broken out all over the country. Um, some of them blocking bridges, but there's a lot of anger right now. It came out today that this year there have been 1,200 deaths at the hands of the police, which averages about three a day. So, so that's, that's, in the, that's in the U.S.? This is in the U.S. Um, and I can tell you from personal experience, I was a lawyer and I represented four young people of color Latino and black, who were all also murdered by the police. And, you know, we won big money settlements, but that doesn't bring the child back. It doesn't repair the family. So today is a day of major protest here. But there's a lot of other things that are going on, too. For the first time in many years, we're seeing a rebirth of the union movement. The union movement had become pretty stale and pretty tired. Suddenly, we have young people who work at Starbucks, Amazon, Trader Joe's, places like that, who are learning about unions and organizing unions themselves. And it's exciting because the way they see unions is that the union should be concerned not just with wages and hours, but with broader issues. For instance, the environmental crisis, which for all of us is an existential crisis. They want that to be part of their platform. You know, they want equal rights for people of all genders and sexes to be treated equally. So, it's very inspiring. And in some cases, 
they're so tired of the old school unions that they built their own independent unions so that they have more democracy and more control. And I've written a book, this book here, Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War. And the main people that are buying it are these young people because they're gaining inspiration from the experience I had of being an activist since I was 15, I'm now 72. And it's very rewarding to have them send me emails asking questions. How do we do this? How do we do that? How do we, you know, fight against, you know, racial discrimination in the factory? And I'm finding that I'm an elder and I'm a mentor. And I really can appreciate that role. So, in fact, I just want to let your viewers know that we're putting the book on sale at a 40% discount. So if they go to my website, www.jonathanmelrod.com, on the landing page, you can buy it at 40% off. But let's get back to your questions. Right. Right, Jonathan. Well explained. Uh, now, you know, in the way you fought for things, for causes in your life, is in today's time. Earlier, it used to take a lot of time for these things. Now, you talk that a lot of young people are getting, you know, aware about things that should concern them and about unionism and about several con companies and, you know, in the positive direction. That's a good sign. But how do you look at, you know, uh, when you look at activism, then there is a lot of uh, commercialization that has happened in terms of for-profit organizations, then non-profit, not-for-profit organizations. What I want to understand is that is activism today full-time job, part-time job? And in several cases, it's almost like a contractual job where people move from one cause to another for the sake of bucks. Big bucks, green bucks, whatever bucks. Well, you know, you're making a pretty astute point that that is an issue and that is a problem. There's some people that enter activism so that they can be big shots and they can set up funds to collect money and then without transparency, use it for themselves. That's not the dominant trend, but it's discouraging to a lot of people to see that happening. The solution to it is complete transparency. And that's what we need to have. You know, at heart, we want dedicated people. We don't want hustlers as part of the political movement. And luckily... In my experience, with many of these young people, they're just dedicated, want to do right, want to change the world, and that isn't what interests them. They're not trying to get a better position higher in the union. They're happy to stay as organizers. So there's a lot of idealism 
you know, and you know, and I know for some people that can change into profit, but we're doing our best to police that. And there's been some exposures. For instance, I was in the United Auto Workers Union for 13 years. And we never trusted the top guys in the international union, the ones that ran the whole thing. Turns out that 13 of them were just sentenced to jail for embezzlement, for taking money from corporations, for embezzling union dues, buying houses on golf courses. Finally, the government came in, charged them, and jailed them. That's a great thing, because people were losing faith in the union. You don't want to be the guy out there working on that assembly line every day so that the top guy can be smoking cigars, which they were buying expensive cigars, and, and, and having an easy life. Back in 1983... I was elected as a delegate to the international convention and I led a fight on the floor of the convention demanding that we, the membership, have the right to vote for all international officers. We lost that vote because the international had their people planted all through the convention, threatening people, threatening to take away their jobs if they didn't vote against us. So we weren't able to win what we called one member, one vote, democracy. This year, with the guys who were sent to jail, the court also ordered a referendum on one member, one vote, and it passed. So for the first time this year, the actual membership of the unions voted for candidates, the majority of whom were honest reform Union guys. Right, right, Jonathan. Now, one big question that comes to my mind is, you know, how we talked about changing the world. When you are young, you want to change the world. A lot of people, you say, are, you know, wanting to change the world. Would you really advise them to go with an idea, become an activist with this utopian idea of changing the world? I don't know which activist has actually been able to change the world, though the vision has been very, very noble. After some point in time, you realize you cannot change the world. You've got to change yourself. You can change a few things along the way. I ask you a very difficult question in that sense. What would you advise to the young generation when they are looking for a cause or choosing a cause, should they look out for changing the world or should they look out for changing something which actually is, you know, uh, important and that should be much more focused? How, what would you tell them uh, exactly on this front? Well, that's an important question because in my view, as I tell my children, who are 25 and 28, when they come to me discouraged about the world, discouraged about the climate crisis, I say to them, if you do nothing, it's going to get worse. You know, 
I understand. I've been trying to do this since 1965. And we did change some of the world. There wouldn't, there, the books now, history indicates that if we hadn't built the anti-Vietnam War movement in this country, President Johnson was considering using nuclear weapons. But he was afraid to, because at that point, we literally had millions in the streets protesting. At my university, we struck for weeks when he invaded Cambodia until they brought the National Guard in with bayonets to force the doors open to the college. We had it shut down. So the Vietnam War lasted for longer than I wish it had, but I believe it might have gone on a lot longer had we not been so adamant about it. So I think that it's a good question, but the answer is there is no choice. Can we live like this? Can we allow the disparity of wealth to continue to the poor get poorer and the rich get richer. And that's not the right way the world should be. Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, these big names, they're billionaires, but they don't want to give a $2 raise to their employees. Right. Or a th- right. 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 You want to carry on, carry on. No problem. I thought well, maybe. Yeah. You know, I was just going to say the same thing recently happened. Um, on the railroads, the railroad contract expired. And in this country, they've allowed seven monopolies to run all the railroads. And they're unregulated completely. To me, they should be government owned, but they're not. So the workers voted to strike. They can't take off one single day as a sick day without facing discipline. So I was recently doing some research and this there was a, a guy, a railroad worker named Aaron Hills. He was 51. He died of a heart attack last June. Weeks after postponing a doctor's appointment, he, because he was afraid of being penalized on his job. That's why my book is entitled The Class War. I got pancreatic cancer when I was in 2004, and I was told I only had six months to a year to live at most. Very few people, very few ever recover. And I said to the surgeon, first off, I can't die because I have a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. And I'm not going to leave them without a father. I can promise you that. And I set my mind to beating that disease. And I used alternative medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, Chinese medicine, Western medicine. I went at it with everything I could. And they were shocked. I was up and walking within weeks of the surgery. And I beat it. So, you know, the surgeon directly linked my pancreatic cancer 
to the chemicals I was exposed to in the auto factory and in the tannery, to tanning solvents and to trichloroethylene. And the company refused to give us protective clothing to keep us safe. Why? They didn't want to spend the money. They're so profit-driven, it's such a brutal class war, they'd rather save that little bit of money than provide safety measures for their workers. Right, Jonathan, right. But, uh, I'm very happy to see you hale and hearty, and may God keep you hale and hearty as long as possible, as long as you want to. But it is very also unfortunate to know about the reason behind that and how profit-driven companies can become so heartless and almost inhuman. Uh, that, that's very painful, and I don't know uh, what are the right answers to it. Maybe this sort of thing is everywhere. But looking at, you know, things as a whole, talking about companies, talking about individuals, talking about class, we, a lot of people fight for democracy, that this is the right system we have. We have to have freedom. When we have freedom, when we have democracy, that is where a lot of corporates come in. You work hard, you earn better, you can earn as much as you want. There is no limit to profit. And when we have a system like this, which many consider that this is the best we can have, in such a situation, we have these sort of corporations who are almost like, you know, in terms of GDP, almost like small countries, almost like, you know, uh, deciding the fate of millions of people. How do we find a way out? Because we have, the world has also tried to look at other systems, including, you know, equal society, communism and all that everywhere. We have seen the pros and cons of all the systems in across a major part of the world. So how do we look at a solution today? What is a class? Earlier, the class was the haves and the have-nots. Today, what is the class that exists today? Who is this fight against? Because if you fight against one thing, on the other part, you are fighting against yourself if you look at it in a different manner. If you fight against some of the corporates, it will look like you are fighting against, you know, jobs. And then if you somebody will tell you are not letting them function, you need a, a very independent system where corporates and individuals can flourish. A lot of startups are there. So many things together get so jumbled that you just don't know sometimes what to fight for. Sometimes on one front, you are fighting with them. Sometimes you are fighting against them. How do you see this whole dilemma today that we have today in this global world? I don't know if I can answer your global question because it's a big one and we might have to go on for a long time. But let me just give you the example. When I went to work in an automobile factory in 1972, we made good wages. We had a pension system. We had health care. People had their own homes. People had a little place up on the lake where they could go for the weekend. 
and they could send their kids to college. America then went through a deindustrialization period. All of these industries either shut down or they cut back wages so drastically that there is no more middle class like there once was. If you were to come to America and see the amount of homeless people in San Francisco, you would be shocked. Tourists who come here just can't believe that in this society that is supposed to be so wealthy, and it has people that are so wealthy on the top, that there's people who are homeless. And they're not people who don't want to work. Maybe there are some. But many, many of them are people that are on the bottom rungs of the work ladder and don't make enough to to rent a house, to rent an apartment. My sons went to San Francisco to rent an apartment. Two bedrooms, $4,000 every month. Can you imagine? So how do young people live? They live in groups of homes of five people. They live in almost like communes from the old days. But it makes it so difficult that the landlords in their drive to become so wealthy that they're driving rents further and further up. Now, in that case, I believe we need to have rent control. That's one measure that would be very helpful because at some point you've got to say you can't charge half of a person's weekly wage for their living accommodation. I know that didn't answer your big question. No, 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 it's perfectly. I was just thinking, I think, why don't, uh, because you see, it's it, the world has become more of a demand and supply. If the all the big places where you need to stay in, live in, those people are making profit because they know there is a demand for this particular thing. And I guess in the US, it is a bit more than other parts of the world. Why don't people choose things which will loosen the control of such people over either rent, over about the way you live, about the choices you make, about things. Even in terms of bigger companies, if in terms of, uh, you say, marketplaces who have got huge control over our lives. If we start buying things local, no problem. You can do that. You are helping the local economy. Aren't we as individuals, we are also so responsible along with this whole uh, concept of making this few people so rich that they are beyond us. They are, uh, you know, almost looking like outwardly and this whole world is only a marketplace for them. Shouldn't we attempt to look at ways for them to control us. This is the way, uh, this is the only way, I guess. And then but, we'll perhaps think, bring things at an Because why would I say today, uh, why would I have an aspiration of working in such a huge organization which does not uh, conform to the type of ethics I want to follow? Are there, haven't you moved from the US to the Philippines? Are you not? Looking at, you know, people have choices. Are we, is it that humans have stopped believing in themselves, 
looking at the choices that they have and they just want to stick to the very choices which these big companies want to leave on the table only for for you how do well, you that's yeah i can give you an example that's very small but it speaks to exactly what you're saying when i put my book out we are encouraging people to buy the book from the independent bookstores or from the publisher because people have gotten to where they want instant gratification order the book on amazon it'll be there tomorrow well who does that benefit that benefits jeff bezos it doesn't benefit the independent bookseller it doesn't benefit the local community so you're right a lot of this does come down to individuals and their choices but those choices have to be made as well on a broader societal scale if we're going to have an impact on the world right and do you see that happening because the world is waking up the world is the younger generation is waking up to different sort of issues but at the same time i somehow see 8 years old 10 years old talking about environment or climate or the earth is not bad but how do they become the leaders of this whole generation of people that you let them have i will not take any names here uh, jonathan but they become your leaders they go to the all the top places and talk about all the big things which are difficult for even them to understand who are, it is not possible for a 10 year old 12 year old to do all those things on their own either it's a wealthy father is it a some sort of a lobby which is supporting you it does not work like that people spend their lifetime to understand issues choose which ones to fight and fight for the right cause fight in the right manner and take that mantle of leadership and take everybody together you just don't use the social media or the power of the money or whatever it is and become a leader in your own sense and then you know all those followers and everything these are all like a matrix which can be created how do you look at that where is the hope as we move forward in today's time one thing that i tried to do was write this book and i have now about 10,000 social media followers and i constantly try and educate them so that they will broaden their minds and look at the world through a light that they see what's just and what's unjust so for instance i created a post there's been a million workers went on strike in france last week The reason was that Macron, President Macron wanted to change the age they could retire. They can now retire at 62. He wanted to make it 64, 65. They have seven different unions in France. For the first time, all seven of them joined together because the French really value the quality of their life. They have a 5 week vacation, they all take it. They retire early. 
There's lots of things that we can do that can make our lives better, more humane, etc. Um, and I've been really pleased with the people who've come to me and said, we're really inspired by what you've written. Maybe I change 100, 200, but then they've got to go out and change more. It's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying I don't see an alternative. You know, unless you want to walk over homeless people and step on them, you know, you've got to try and do something about it. One example is in San Francisco, the very progressive council members on the city have now passed an ordinance that any new building has to have 20% of the apartments for low-income people. That's one step. You know, rather than build these high-rises that only tech entrepreneurs can live in, they're trying to balance the fact that middle-class, lower-class people need decent housing. So I think it's unfortunately very incremental, but I'd like it to be the big picture like you're looking at, and maybe someday there will be. Unfortunately, maybe in your lifetime, not mine. But <laughs> you, you are going to live a long life. Thank you. Thank you. I hope so, um, as do my children. Um, yes. But uh, so, I, I, you know, that's, that's what I believe. I mean, even coming on your show, to me, was part of what we're talking about. Because you've given me the opportunity to talk about such a broad range of topics that I feel like I can talk to people about what I believe and what I think can be done. I was an immigration lawyer for many years. After I left the factory, I went to law school. And I used to represent political asylum applicants and refugees. And that made a big change in people's lives. You know, a guy from Pakistan, a journalist, had caught the Muslim League stuffing the ballot box, and he took photos of it. They came to beat him up. He put the photos, the roll of film, in his underwear. Because it was a Muslim country, they didn't want to take his underwear off. So he escaped to the United States. And I pleaded his case in the immigration court, and he was granted asylum as a journalist. Now, he asked me to come to my office on a Saturday, and Benazir Bhutto called up to thank me for helping him because it was an election that she was running in. So you've got to find the ways that you can make a difference. Basically, I'm supportive of anybody that does anything that tries to make a difference, be it a teacher, you know, be it, you know, um, you know, a union organizer, be it somebody who goes into alternative health care. Look at how much I wouldn't have survived had I not utilized alternative health care. So all of these things are components of a bigger picture of how we can struggle to change the world. And I think if people who are listening 
I don't want to be too much of a self-promoter, but if they go to my website, jonathanmelrod.com, there's a lot of archival material there that go through my whole life and talk about what contributions I feel like I've made. And of course, there's the book, which I hope some of your readers will read and let you know what they think about it and let you know what they think about what we've talked about tonight. Absolutely, Jonathan. And, you know, for the viewer's sake, for the audience... Wait, give me one second. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Ajay, go ahead. No problem. So, for the audience, once again, Jonathan, where can they get this book, Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Classroom? This is the book, and they have to go to my website, www.jonathanmelrod.com, and on the landing page, they can order it at a 40% discount. So we want it to be, I'm not in it to make money. I mean, I'm in it to inspire people and spread the word of what I think people can do. So that's why we've reduced it to 40%. We're selling it well. It's not because we can't sell it. It's because I want more people to have access to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Inspiring the world. Uh, Jonathan, you have been fighting for different causes all your life. You fought well. You also fought. For some fought... reason, your sound is not coming through. Uh, is it? Is it coming in now? Now it is, yeah. Yes. So, Jonathan, as I said, you have fought well all through your life about different causes that you care for. You have fought bravely the terminal pancreatic cancer, which doctor said was, you know, which which would limit your life. But you are still going strong. You are a fighter and you are fighting very, very strong in today. Even today, you are active in the human rights struggle defending imprisoned Filipino political prisoners. My last question to you, Jonathan, is that uh, what has been your most motivating factor? What is it that you fight for now? What is it that you want to achieve now after a life full of achievements in your own way? I'd like to answer that this way. My father grew up very poor. He used to talk about when the depression came, he came home from school and his father, who was a tailor, had lost his whole business. He had never seen his father drinking. His father was drunk. And he had hung a fish carcass, the bones, hanging from the light, the the string you pull to turn the light on. And he said to my father, look, this is what they've done to me. We have nothing left. So my father had nothing. When he went to become a lawyer, he didn't have money to go to law school. He sat outside in the hall and he listened through the transom and took notes. And he started out helping people who were less fortunate. He went on to do other things the more he practiced. But when he got ready to depart this earth, he said to me, 
Jonathan, promise me that you will do whatever you can to leave the earth a better place than you came into it. And that's what I've tried to do, is to make the world a better place than it is that I was born into. So I know in India, you have more respect for elders than we do in this country, but I have that same respect for my father who gave me those guiding lessons. On this note, it's a wrap on this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, Jay, I want to thank you. I thought this was a lot of fun, and you throw some great questions at me that get me thinking.